Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh. There's Chuck, and there is a certain lady holding <laughs> an open flame. Nope, holding oh. an open flame and wearing sandals. So this must open be flame, stuff you should know. Sandals and lady. Are we at a fish concert? <laughs> yep. <laughs> she has an app that has is an open flame on her phone. Did she just? Does she have a whippet balloon at her feet? Uh, yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> you can't see it from below the pedestal, though. Oh, that's very nice. <laughs> so, Chuck, no, no, it's so wrong. I wasn't talking about someone at a fish concert. I was talking about the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> Good, because that's what I researched. Same here. Same here. Because if we had just both happened to research the wrong thing, um, but it was the same thing, we could have still just pulled it out like we are right now. Maybe. You know, uh, but but we both researched the Liberty Enlightening the World statue. That's right, better known as the Statue of Liberty to the you know hoi polloi. But for those in the know, it's really Liberty Enlightening the World. And hoi polloi is Hawaiian for huddled masses. <laughs> That's right, wretched, um, wretched. Uh, it wasn't. Yeah, it was wretched. You're cold and tired and wretched. Were they wretched? That's that's how Emma Lazarus put it, and I mean, I don't think she was being mean. I think she was saying that the state that they found themselves in was fairly wretched. The, the she called them your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, and she was talking to continental Europe, but she was also basically that's saying right. like, you guys suck. You send us your worst, we're going to turn them into our best. Right. And like you said, we're talking about the statue that if you have been to New York City, uh, sits there in the harbor, looming large, uh, at the time, the largest statue. Mm -hmm. And uh, clear up one misconception before we kind of get to the history. Mm -hmm. You often hear like, it was a gift from the French government to the American government. Uh, Not true. And I always sort of thought that. But as we will learn, it's an even cooler story. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, like, real people paid for it with oftentimes very small donations, much like uh, Bernie Sanders was was building this statue. <laughs> I was just about to swoop in with that. Nice work, man. Thanks. So, um, yeah, they, they, it, was, it was paid for by hard-fought funds that came from the people. I love that, too. But there was one guy who came up with the idea. This is one of those things where it's like there was a dude walking around, and mm-hmm. the idea for the Statue of Liberty popped into his head. That's right. um, and I love stories that start like that. Some guy's just walking down the boulevard, and uh, his name happens to, in this case, be Edouard de, uh, de Laboulet. And he was walking around France in 1865 and saying, you know, this place used to be a lot better when it was a democracy. Right. And, and now we're under the rule of Napoleon III. Yeah. Things aren't so great. And you know where things are looking pretty decent is over there in those United States where— they have just uh, – Lincoln has come along, issued mm-hmm. the Emancipation Proclamation, and, like, they're trying to do things right over there. Yeah. And I think we should recognize them and also sort of say to our own French people, hey, look at what they're doing over there. Not bad. Yeah, by by honoring America. And in this case, it was going to be giving America a birthday gift from France 
um, on her 100th birthday in 1876, uh, yeah, it would kind of shine a light on friends and be like, hey, look at how great things can be. Like, they ratified the 13th Amendment over there. There's no slavery anymore. Like, people are free. They're taking immigrants in. It's like a beautiful place. Let's be more like America. Um, and the ironies so, abound, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So he started um, asking around um, and, and sharing his idea, and it actually kind of caught fire in a lot of ways. It wasn't like a, a ho-hum idea by any means. There were a lot of people in France who supported it, and one of the people who, who joined on board very early on was uh, Frederico Auguste Bartoldi, who ended up being the sculptor who sculpted the Statue of Liberty. And he sculpted, he came up with the idea really fast, almost suspiciously fast. And when people grabbed him by his lapels and said, how'd you come up with this beautiful idea so fast? They shook out of him a piece of scrap paper that he had submitted elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, he did what any great uh, designer does, which is kind of sifted through his bag of used tricks. Right. uh, Because he was on a deadline. He actually wasn't on a deadline. But yeah, he had, in the 1850s, uh, gone to the Middle East and was inspired by the Sphinx and the pyramids and said, you know, I'd like to do something really nice like that. And he got his chance when Egypt said, hey, we want a big lighthouse in the Suez Canal here. And he came up with this cool, large, tall lady with a lamp to guide the people's way into uh, through the Suez Canal. And then they said, nah, we don't think we're going to do that anyway. Right. And instead of just being angry and upset, he said, that's fine. I'll just repurpose it. Yeah. He said, it's like water off a duck's back, Egypt. I don't care. I got I got other things to do. And I like to think of it as not that um, that that we got a secondhand design. But more like the design was so great that it it must be, it must come into existence and that it came into an even better existence in the harbor off of Manhattan um, rather than the Suez Canal. Yeah, he worked smarter, not harder. (laughs) That's right. That's another way to put it if you're a landscaper. Uh, He had to change a few things around (laughs) He had to change, yeah, that and green side up. Those are the only two things you have to remember. (laughs) Those are kind of the rules of thumb, yeah. Uh, So he changed up a few things from his initial uh, Egyptian design, um, namely the Egyptian look. He changed that up and instead of an Egyptian headdress, came up with that cool spiky hat. Yeah, hey, I didn't realize this, did you, that like that crown against her forehead, that's a crown, but Mm -hmm. those spikes coming off, off of it are like reflections of rays from the sun. They're not meant to be, it's not like a structural part of the crown or, or not, it's not meant to be. Oh, so that's supposed to be interesting. Yeah, it's seven rays of sunlight shining out from it. Like that, that I guess is, is reflecting off of it. It's meant to be like the, the light of the sun reflecting off. Yeah, you think it's just like a, like almost like, um, I don't know, like a like a guar-esque like a, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, like, like a spiky, cool crown. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I'd be interested. I wonder if anyone has done a little Photoshopping without that to see the true nature of the hat, the oh, crown. I'd like to see that. I know a few people who are good at Photoshop. I don't know. <laughs> but you're going to get your face and my body. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> In our worst pictures. Uh, the other thing they changed, or one of the other things he changed was uh, the original statue had a lamp. And he said, the lamp is nice for the Suez Canal, but let's go with the torch right. for, for the United States. And because it it, it, um, it symbolized enlightenment. It was liberty enlightening the world. And, you know, like, I guess you could enlighten the world with the lamp, but the lamp's more like showing the way. This is like, yeah. 
casting the 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 light of enlightenment out in every direction. You know, the torch yeah, showing does the meta- better. Metaphorical? Showing the metaphorical way. Mm-hmm. Sure. I almost said metaphysical. Um, <laughs> then there was also that tablet she's holding at her side, the mm-hmm. tablet of law with uh, July 4, 1776, and Roman numerals there inscribed on the side. That was a new addition because the first, the original one, um, for Progress Carrying a Light to Asia in the Suez Canal, just had her, had her hand like cupped by her side, not even doing anything. It's kind of like hand on the hip, right? Or no? Yeah. When okay. I dip, you dip, we dip. Right. <laughs> uh, and then to call back your very sly little uh, joke that you stuck in there at the front of this podcast, uh, you cannot from the ground level because the pedestal is so tall, see what's going on with the feet. And I had never really looked. Uh, but right there, if you Google a picture of Lady Statue of Liberty's feet, mm-hmm. there are broken shackles and a broken chain uh, that represents the abolition of slavery. And I never knew that was there either. Yeah. And so after Bertoldi said, listen, guys, look, I made all these changes. They they um, flattened out his suit and straightened his tie and put his glasses back on. And then they lifted him up on their shoulders. And they said, Bertoldi, Bertoldi. <laughs> and they carried him down the avenue um, in, as a, a kind of an initial parade. There'd be a lot of parades surrounding the Statue of Liberty and its development. But Bertoldi, Never to be seen again. Right. (laughs) He disappeared. It was an accident, man. It was an accident. And the group agreed never to speak of it. But regardless, what I'm trying to say is Bertoldi, he got the contract to to be the guy who designed this wonderful statue for France to give to the United States. Right. So he hops on a a plane. No, no, no. Not a plane. I would guess a steamer ship or something. I can't imagine how long that kind of stuff just took and how patient you know. to be. But it's an ocean voyage. There's like a sense of adventure. Definitely. But also after you do it like for the umpteenth time, it's probably like, come on. Although if you don't have any frame of reference of things going any faster, maybe it doesn't seem quite as long. Like uh, you and I having flown, taking Mm -hmm. a steamer, it's just like, oh my God. But these it's not like someone happen. would have said, you know what else has a sense of adventure? The Concorde. <laughs> That's right. A lot quicker, too, but very very adventurous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I pretty... heard they're bringing that back. Yeah, I think we talked about that in an episode. Didn't we do one on the Concorde? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't yeah, remember gonna... us talking about it coming back. I think we did. I no, think okay. we mentioned, I mean, there needs to be something super fast. They're, like yes. at this point? Yes, agreed. We're, we're there. I, we're at teleportation stage. We're definitely lagging behind. I think so. That's like the Seinfeld gag when they uh, when they talk about uh, we're going to try and like make up some airtime or whatever. And he was just like, "Why aren't they just flying as fast as they can every single time?" <laughs> that was a, I was like, "That's a very good point." It was a mind-boggling Seinfeld. Uh, all right, so in 1871, he gets on that steamership. He comes over to travel to the United States to try and get some support because this is going to be a very expensive project and maybe to kind of scout out some locations. And boom, right there as he's pulling into New York Harbor, he sees the light, the metaphorical light, and sees Bedloe Island, B-E-D-L-O-E, mm-hmm. uh, right there in the harbor. And he was like, wait a minute, what is this place? And everyone said, oh, it's nothing. It's just it's a hunting and fishing ground. Uh, for the Lenape Native Americans here before us. And then the Dutch settled it, and now the U.S. military owns it. And it's you don't really need to worry about it. And he was like, no, I do, because that 
my friends, is the perfect spot. Yeah, it, it was perfectly situated to watch over the ships coming into the harbor. Um, and uh, that became the spot for the Statue of Liberty. It really is a great spot for it. Uh, and it was uh, renamed Liberty Island in 1956 by the Eisenhower administration. So, That's right. So Bertoldi, he, he goes back to France, and um, he's met some Americans and drummed up the interests among Americans. He's found the site for this amazing place that he's going to uh, build a, the world's tallest sculpture on. Um, and he ends up helping found the Franco-American Union, which, as you said, this wasn't a gift from the French government to the American government. And as, as a matter of fact, I think that was the first thing that Bertoldi and his, his friends tried. And the French said no. The Americans said no. That's just ridiculous. It's going to cost too much and it'll never work. So they started trying, trying to cobble together like private support for it. And the result of that was the Franco-American Union. And I have one thing, one thing to say about the Franco-American Union, Chuck. Mm-hmm. I was like, Franco-American sounds really familiar. And then I realized Franco-American spaghetti. Remember that spaghetti in a can? Yeah. Makes zero sense. The, the French aren't well known for their spaghetti and no. spaghetti sauce. Their um, spaghetti Right. The um, the Italians are. And I think it was an Italian company. I think they took that name on because they were founded around the time that the Franco-American Union was trying to drum up interest in the Statue of Liberty project. I couldn't oh. find support for that, but that's my new hypothesis. All right. I'd say we take a break and ponder that, okay. maybe have some of it. All right. Because that's not Chef Boyardee. That's different, right? I, I, don't, I like both. But yes, it oh, okay. is different. All right, well, we'll go do a sample of each, and we'll come (laughs) back with our winner right after this. Who won? They were both winners. All right. <laughs> I love that ravioli still. I, I never get it. Like once every three or four years, mm-hmm. I'll get that tangy, what is even in that, what kind of meat is in that ravioli, and I'll eat it. I, I No, I haven't had Franco-American spaghetti since I can't even remember, but I do remember it being the sweet spaghetti. Because <laughs> that's what we need. <laughs> right. Uh, have you ever been to the Statue of Liberty, first of all, like in and traveled up and done the whole thing? I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that. No, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't either. Uh, I did. It, you know, it's it's Liberty Island now, and there's Liberty State Park as part of the grounds. And I went to see Radiohead there mm-hmm. uh, in late August 2001, mm-hmm. right there with the Statue of Liberty looming and the Twin Towers right across the water wow. at night. Wow. And, of course, you know, it was just a couple of weeks after that, that the Twin Towers were gone. It was very Man. Uh, surreal to have gone to that show at that moment in time. Uh, and almost, well, not almost, 20 years ago. Yeah. Almost meaning, as we record, just a couple of days away. Right. So, Chuck, um, you haven't been to the Statue of Liberty either, I guess, is ultimately the point of your story. No, just a Radiohead concert. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I don't feel particularly bad because I was reading a 1986 piece of contemporary journalism (laughs) Mm. 
uh, contemporary to when they restored the Statue of Liberty, which we'll talk about for a second later. Um, and they were talking to the foreman, one of the foremen on the job, and he was saying, like, I've lived in New York for 48 years, and it took me getting this job to come out here. I've never been here. So I think, like, a lot of people, okay. including people who— I think tourists m- are the ones who have been to the Statue of Liberty. Not to say, like, I'm not a tourist when I go to New York, but— um, right. It just makes me feel a little less bad that it's not like, what kind of an American are you? You haven't been to the Statue of Liberty, you commie? Yeah, and it kind of feels like, and I'm I'm completely wrong here, but it kind of feels like one of those where you're like, no, you know, I get a nice view of it from New York, and when I fly in and out, you get a really nice view of it. Like, why do I need to actually go over there? But it, it, I should probably make the journey over there. We'll do it together. Holding the right. hands of fraternity, liberty, <laughs> egality. And podcastery. That's right. So uh, Bertoldi comes back to France. Oh, yeah, I forgot about him. As the story goes, he attends a wedding and sees this young woman and is like, whoa, ho, ho, who is that? Holding that and hat. Everyone said, yeah, she had a hat box. And everyone said, that's uh, Jean-Emily, how do you pronounce that last name? Behu. 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 You were doing so good with the French. Behu. Behu. All right. <laughs> uh, B-A-H-E-U-X. Yeah. I know that last part would has to be you, right? Yeah, or go. Oh, Baho. 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 We're just going with uh, Ms. B. <laughs> yeah, let's call her Ms. B. And he said, I have finally met my Lady Liberty. He goes on to marry this woman. And as legend has it, uh, and I don't think this was ever confirmed from him, but as legend has it, he used her as the body uh, model for the Statue of Liberty, and supposedly his mother Charlotte's face, which, which is, you know. It introduces a certain <laughs> level of Freudianism. Yeah, paging Dr. Freud big time. <laughs> you know, that poor guy. <laughs> my but mom's face on my wife's body. Dave uh, helped us out with this, uh, and he says that apparently uh, his mother struck a stern, imposing figure, so that's why he chose his mother's face. All right. We're just going to go with that and just kind of slowly back out of this room. That's right. Uh, The next thing he needed to do after he had his artistic inspiration and his model was to, you know, he didn't, he's not a builder of things. He, he's, he's, well, he is a builder of things, but he's not an engineer and an architect on that level. Yeah. He was very much interested in that kind of stuff, but it it was, it was way beyond the scope of what he was capable of understanding himself. Yeah. So he needed some help. And he figured that, first of all, this is the tallest statue in the world at the time, so it's going to be a challenge. Mm -hmm. And then what I want to do is build it in France and then take it apart and then rebuild it in the States. Yes, dude. I kind of get this in a way, but I almost think that they could have gotten all the parts and shipped them to the United States to build on site for the first time. I I mean, I kind of get where he was coming from, though. You don't want to send everything over and ending up being like Mr. McCraig with a leg for an arm and an arm for a leg or something like that. You want to make sure it works first before you... If you ask me, that shows, it demonstrates the level of dedication that the French had to this gift to America. And my hat, my chapeau is off to them for it. Well, and I guess he figured, because my whole logic was like, and you could do it in America and solve the same problems here as you could have solved there, but... It'd just be more he, embarrassing here in America. Well, I don't even know about that, but I think 
he was working with his people there and you can't bring all those people over. So there was, I'm sure there was a comfort level and a language issue uh, or barrier potentially that he wouldn't have to overcome. So I, I, I succumb. I also think probably that he he was also using it as a um, a way to drum up interest and in, in therefore yeah. funds for it as well. True, because he had to raise money. We'll get to that. So um, Bertoldi uh, talked to a couple of architects. The first one he spoke to was uh, Eugene Viollet-le-Duc. Uh, he was a the greatest architect in France at the time, and he basically said, "Look, you want to use this technique called repoussé." And it's basically what you're going to do is build a skeleton or something of some sort, some sort of structure underneath that you can then attach thin sheets of copper to. So the sculpture is going to be made of copper, but it's not going to be like cast or carved or anything like that. That's, that's, it, it would just be impossible to do. Um, instead, you're just going to affix copper sheets to it to make the thing out of. And I guess uh, Viollet le Duc suggested making a concrete structure underneath. And um, Bertoldi was like, okay, you know, I, I like you a lot. We've we've had a lot of great basketball games together, and um, you're my <laughs> friend. So I'm going to go with your recommendation. But then Viollet-le-Duc died, and right. in came uh, another guy from our podcast history, Gustave Eiffel, or Eiffel. There he is. created the Eiffel Tower, and he said, yet. This is this is all wrong. Like, yes, they <laughs> said, why are you speaking Russian? Yes, the, he's <laughs> like, I'm trying out some new things. Uh-huh. Uh, he said, yes, I totally agree with Viollet le Duc's idea to use Ray Pousset. That was a stroke of genius. But the idea of, like, creating the structure underneath out of concrete that's way too heavy, way too rigid, and it's just totally unnecessary. Try yeah. out my new technique of trusses and girders made of wrought iron. It's going to be way lighter, and it's going to give it a lot more flexibility. Yeah, I think he kind of thought that, and I think he was probably right, is that other way was a little more old school mm-hmm. and that he saw the future, uh, you know, pre-Eiffel Tower. He was, The future guess, is in, wrought iron. <laughs> I guess so. He was in love with those iron girders. And so he said, here's what we'll do. We'll design this giant 92-foot pylon, and that'll be the central point mm-hmm. from which everything will spring. Right. And there'll be this uh, more lightweight uh, kind of grid of girders and trusses that's going to form that skeleton from that central pylon. Mm-hmm. And then a secondary, another iron frame even, and that's what those copper sheets are going to be riveted to right. one at a time. And he said, this is the way, like you said, it's going to have a little give. Uh, and today, even the Statue of Liberty can can sway a bit, as all mm-hmm. great tall structures uh, usually are made to, to go a little bit with the wind. She can sway about three inches and like herself, and then the torch can sway up to six inches. Mm-hmm. You should see she sways even more if there's a good Calypso song playing nearby. Right, or you should have seen her at that radio ad show. <laughs> I'll bet. She's getting She's down. She's like, oh, I love this song. Oh, man, this is a good song. <laughs> no booze at that show. That's what I remember. Do, does Radiohead Do, ever get booed? No, no, no. Booze as in alcohol. Oh, oh gotcha. it, was a, it was a big surprise because it was a state park. So, you know, 15,000 people show up and we we're like, where's the beer line? And they're like, oh, there is no alcohol here. You, you can stand in line, but there's nothing yeah. at the other end of it. And so we were like, we're leaving then. Did everybody go booze? No, yeah, there were booze after all. No, it was fine. <laughs> right. we, we all lived for two hours without drinking. It was fine. That's amazing. <laughs> wow, that story just keeps getting more and more amazing, Chuck. I know. I'm trying to think of some more uh, 
more fine points. I'll see if I can think of any. A giant snake that wound its way through the audience and everyone thought it was going to attack everyone and kill them, but instead it bounced people up and crowd surfed with them? <laughs> no, actually, I did remember that the end of that story is I happened to bump into my good friend Bill from it, from college, who I didn't even know was there, and he had snuck some booze in. Oh, Boozy Bill was there. <laughs> Boozy Bill. <laughs> 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 He's not getting like a prepared. like a pint of whiskey or something, yeah, and, and some you know, fake binoculars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Oh man, I remember those. Those are great. Yeah. Uh, all right, so Eiffel says this is the plan. The plans are approved. Uh, Eiffel himself supervised the construction of this tower and the extension tower that is going to you know end up being that right arm with the torch, and that took about. Two years, and they wound it up in 1883. But that was just Eiffel's contribution. Two just years his for part. his stuff. Yeah, no, no copper at this point at all. So um, they're, I mean, like at this point, they're like doing some cutting edge stuff. Um, but one of the reasons why it's cutting edge is because no one's ever tried any of this before. Again, this is going. They're making the tallest statue in the world. They were using like engineering techniques and structures that were unproven. This was. Uh, like um, uh, Eiffel completed his part six years before the Eiffel Tower debuted. So this is new stuff, unproven, yeah. unintroduced to the world. So it's pretty cool that they were doing that. But one of the first challenges they ran into was figuring out how to make this, the the little, you know, proof of concept tabletop sculptures that they had created. Right. How to turn those scale models into the actual thing. Because... Nowadays, when you design, when you draw, it's on computers, and the you computer hit the up button. exactly, <laughs> yeah, with your elbow and go, come on, yeah. you stupid computer, embiggen. Right, these guys did not have anything remotely like that at their disposal. And when we tell you about how they went from those tabletop models to the actual Statue of Liberty herself, um, it's going to to blow your mind. Yeah, what they did have was brains and math and string. And stick-to-itiveness. And stick-to-itiveness. Because, so, like, right when it occurred to me, Chuck, if I were yeah. leading this thing, the moment it occurred to me what we had to do, I would just start crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or we would just do our best and it would the proportions would be all wrong. It would come out like Mr. McCraig if we were yeah. lucky. Who's Mr. McCraig? What is that? It was like their Dr. Nick um, is talking to somebody and like uh, (laughs) one of his old uh, patients shows up and he's like, Dr. Nick, do you remember me? And he goes, oh, well, if it isn't my old friend, Mr. McCraig with the leg for an arm and an arm for a leg. (laughs) (laughs) This guy's got an arm for a leg and a leg. (laughs) It was just demonstrating how bad Dr. Nick was at his job. Yeah, I love it. Hi, frozen body. Yeah. Uh, all right, so they need to embiggen this thing. Man, there's Simpson stuff flying all, <laughs> all over the place over all of a sudden. Uh, and they've got the little tourist model, like you said, and they're all sitting around with their hands on their chin. Mm-hmm. And they said, all right, why don't we do this? Why don't we gradually make it a little bit bigger? I think we can handle that. And so they, you know, they have this thing called a pantograph. If you look it up online, it doesn't look like much, but it uses these little mechanical arms on boom, like a boom. Mm-hmm. To basically, you can make something bigger or smaller from an original using this thing. Yeah, it enlarges the movements of the pencil or pen you're using to the larger, to the pen 
that's attached on the other end of the boom. It just makes a bigger exact copy. Yeah, so it's it's like it's genius to use this, and they use bigger and bigger ones until they got up to about a one quarter size, which is really big and impressive. Yeah, but it, that's at the point where they're like, "Hey guys, I hate to break it to you, but that's it on the pantograph. Like this is as big as we can go. So from this one quarter size, we're just going to have to guess." Right. Uh, no. <laughs> we're going to have to wing it. No, they they figured out another really ingenious way to kind of measure up from there. And they took that that finished quarter-size version. The maquette. Yes, that, that's the final scale model. The biggest that it got was a quarter-size of the original, or the final, um, the final version. Um, they built a, a structure, like a frame around the maquette, and then they basically attached... Uh, lines, plumb lines from the structure to the model at different string. points. Yeah. Yeah, they use string, basically. But in much the same way, like, you know, on like those cop procedurals, like CSI or whatever, they'll have oh, yeah. like the the red dowels, like sticking out of bullet holes to figure out the trajectory. Mm-hmm. They basically did that with the Statue of Liberty, but in a thousand different locations, every fold, every toenail, every like eye eyelash, like like everything, all of that stuff was plotted out in real life, in three dimension, using plumb lines to to basically create these points of reference. And then they went back and they measured all of them and they figured out where all these points would go times four. And then mm-hmm. they built another structure and went from there and then went the, went backwards. Yes. I really feel like I had it until the end there. Yeah, you kind of petered out at the end. Well, no, they it, went, it, they went, they they multiplied it by four, built the structure that could accommodate that and then brought back down plumb lines to those four times larger points of reference and then started building from there. Yeah, it's a technique called pointing up and all told there were 9,000 measurements uh, 300 main reference points, and then thousands of these pieces of string. Because like you said, it's it's every, you know, they, they can't just get it close. It's every fold in her gown, every, you know, you know the, the thumbnail meeting the thumb. It's all like very, very specific because they had to get it just right. Yeah. And so then they have to start out building this thing. And what they decide to do, obviously, is build it in sections because they're going to have to take it apart and put it back together. So they built it in very large sections, uh, starting with wood scaffolding mm-hmm. and then eventually uh, plaster because you want to, you know, you're, you're sculpting. It can't just be wood and, and copper hammered on there. Like it's got to be, there's got to be some fine detail and some really rounded, smooth edges and stuff like that. Right. So they made basically wood molds, molds out of wood, sculpted the plaster in it, and then they had a plaster mold. And then they could take the plaster mold, which was basically a negative, um, and then they put wood into the plaster molds and uh, warped it so that it yeah. fit the plaster perfectly, kind of like the techniques um, that you would use to make a boat hull, you know, sure. smooth and folded. Um, they did the same thing with these giant plaster casts, uh, but they did it with wood. And then you think, okay, great, wood. What are you going to do with wood? Then with those wood molds that they made from the plaster casts, they took those thin sheets of copper that were about the size of two uh, pennies held together. That's mm-hmm. what the outside of the Statue of Liberty is. That's the thickness of her skin. 
um, they put those copper plates into the wood molds and then hammered them smooth. And now all of a sudden you had the final pieces of the exterior of Lady Liberty coming together. Right. And several hundred pieces in the end. I mean, it's a big project. And if you think, boy, you better label that stuff good, fellas. Mm -hmm. Uh, you're right, because by the when this thing was eventually shipped over, it was a little bit annoying in that it, what happened is what you think would probably happen. Some of this stuff gets mislabeled, mm-hmm. and it wasn't quite arm for a leg territory, I don't think. <laughs> but it was like, all right, now I got to sift through this and, and kind of refigure it all over again. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine. So I say we take a break and uh, come back, and we got to talk about money, everybody. So just sit tight. Okay, so all this is going on. There, Copper, by the way, uh, I feel like this guy's name bears repeating throughout the story, uh, or any time the story is told. Uh, Pierre-Eugène Secretan was an industrialist in France who donated the copper, really high-quality copper, we hear, uh, to the project. But that was, you know, and, and there were other donations and there was other funds raised, but it was... Um, it was hard going, they found out. I get the impression that the French had an easier time because that Franco-American Union came together and they said, okay, how about this? The French will raise about 250,000 francs, about $6 million for the statue itself. And the Americans will raise about $250,000, about $7 million uh, today um, to, to create the pedestal. And they basically said, ready, break. And the French went off and started fundraising. The Americans went off and started fundraising. And I have the impression that the French had a little easier time of it than the Americans did. Yeah, it seems like it. I think the Americans probably thought at the beginning, like, hey, they just want us to pay for the pedestal. Like, this this is nothing. It ended up being a little more expensive than the statue itself. So we were kind of left holding the bag by a little bit. Or the Americans were like, oh, I thought this was a gift. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you want to go Dutch? Great. <laughs> right. And the Dutch are like, what does that even mean? Yeah, the check comes. Uh, so, yeah, that that base is called the truncated pyramid, which basically means a pyramid that doesn't have the pointy top. Yeah. Uh, it gets smaller as it goes up. And it's that itself is 89 feet tall mm-hmm. and 62 feet wide mm-hmm. and about uh, 40 feet wide at the top of that thing where she stands. Mm-hmm. And it is mostly concrete. And it is, uh, it's got a facade of Connecticut granite, but that was a big project in and of itself. Oh, and yeah. yeah, Chuck, also I was, I was researching the pedestal. And I found out there's eight beams in there, eight structural beams poured into the concrete or the pon- concrete poured around it. Four of them are horizontal, but then four toward the top are vertical and they actually break the top of the pedestal. And that is what the uh, interior skeleton of the Statue of Liberty is affixed to. So she's like solidly affixed right. to that pedestal. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. So, like you said, the French, I think, are raising money at a steadier clip. Uh, they're selling tickets to lotteries. Schools were chipping in a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think there were descendants of French soldiers, supposedly, who had fought in the American Revolution that were sending in some money. Yeah, that's that's old school right there. 
Oh, big time. Uh, they started. Oh, this is this is kind of a good idea, actually. They started having uh, fundraising banquets as the structure was growing inside it. Like they had one in the kneecap, one in the thigh, one in the stomach, and then finally one inside the head. Mm-hmm. Great way to raise some money, right? Which is why I was saying, like, I think that's one of the reasons he built it in France first. Yeah, it it makes sense. Sure. And then they did in turn. Uh, eventually, when this thing gets to America in pieces. Mm-hmm. They start doing that here. They start trotting this around. First, they had, uh, I think, the right arm and torch on display in Philadelphia yeah. for the centennial celebration. And then that same torch and arm were at Madison Square Park, and you could pay money to climb up in it and take pictures. Well, you couldn't take pictures and sketch pictures of it. And uh, the <laughs> Americans held prize fights, and they held auctions and stuff like that. So they were doing their best, but they were about a 100 grand short in the end, and that is when a man by the name of Joseph Pulitzer stepped up. Very nice. Really liked this idea, and he was like, "You know what? We gotta, we gotta get there." Uh, I have this rag called the World. It's got great circulation, and Dave points out he's dead right that this is kind of one of the biggest and first crowdfunding campaigns, mm-hmm. and that he launched this big thing of where he was like, "Listen." this isn't the government. We don't want rich, the government doing this or the millionaires of France giving a gift to the millionaires of the United States. This is supposed to be for the common person. And so give a dollar, give 25 cents. And that's what happened. All these people stepped up and gave little tiny increments of money and they fundraised a, about $1,000 over their goal yeah. using that little crowdfunding technique. In just five months, they've, yeah, they've and got the whole, it past the goal. Yeah, the whole hook was, if you give anything, I'll print your name in my newspaper. And it worked. Yeah, oh yeah. If you want to get anything done, offer to print people's name in the newspaper. <laughs> yeah. And that's, in that's a, a positive light. <laughs> positive light. That's a big caveat right there. Right, exactly. And there was one other thing, uh, well, there was a lot of stuff that came out of the fundraising effort, but one of the most notable things that came out of it, Chuck, was the poem by Emma Lazarus that uh, we were referring to earlier. Um, She wrote this poem called The New Colossus uh, as kind of an homage or tribute to this Statue of Liberty idea in order to help raise funds for it. And then it ended up being uh, engraved on a plaque on Liberty Island at the, at the base of the Statue of Liberty, I believe, uh, where it was installed in, I think, 1903. Yeah, that's when it finally was uh, was inscribed. But I think that's kind of cool. Like, she just submitted this as part of the, the fundraising auction, and it ended up being those immortal words. So uh, the hat is off to Emma Lazarus as well. Yeah, agreed. The spiky crown. <laughs> that's right. So, um, okay, we get to the point where... Um, the 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 pieces have been made. They've been assembled together in France. Fundraising banquets have been held in them. They had to get all the old cigar butts and everything out before they put them in shipping crates. Mislabeled shipping crates, no less. Yeah. And Bertoldi goes um, to uh, help oversee the reassembly himself. And um, it's put up in, I believe, uh, so 1885 to October uh, June of 1885 is when the shipping containers show up uh, in uh, in the harbor in New York. And then um, on October 28, 1886 is when the, the, uh, the statue is dedicated. And in between, 350 sheets 
massive sheets of copper that make up the external skin of the uh, Statue of Liberty were put together using 300,000 copper rivets, lots of steam shovels, tons of labor. It was just a huge effort that was probably the fastest part of this whole project. Yeah, and it was, you know, once they figured out those uh, mislabeled crates, it was— it took a while, but it seemed to go pretty smoothly, at least from there. And I also saw, well, I saw, Chuck, they, they figured out very quickly that the arm holding the torch and the head mm-hmm. were misaligned. And they're not sure what happened. They think it is one of the theories is, I read is that um, Bertoldi was not happy with how the statue looked or was going to look uh, based on creating it in uh, France and had it purposefully misaligned to basically change its its look a little bit, its appearance. Oh, interesting. Yeah. All right. So on October 28th, they have, despite it being a rainy day, they had about a million people turn out for this parade down Broadway and then this uh, eventual dedication ceremony mm-hmm. there at still known as Bedloe Island. And uh, Bartoli was the guest of honor. And this is just kind of a funny way to, to end this story mm. is he was up in the crown and he has a big French flag covering up her face. And at the right moment, he's cued by someone down below. He's supposed to whip this thing off at the end of the big speech from the chair of the American committee. And he was he was tipped, he was signaled a little bit early, and the chair of the American committee was still giving that speech when Bartoli dropped this flag. And no one cared. The cannons went off. (laughs) Everyone went crazy. Steam whistles are blowing in the harbor. (laughs) Brass band goes off. And the chair of the American committee was like, all right, I guess, uh, who cares? I'll just finish that later. (laughs) The confession I had prepared will just go unheard, I guess. But nobody cared. And it was was a big, grand success. Yep. And I believe from the time that uh, it was dedicated in 1886, just to... Um, 1924, 14 million immigrants passed by uh, Lady Liberty. So she Amazing. definitely did her job right out of the gate. That's right. They passed by that uh, copper-colored structure. Yeah, at least at first. At first, and uh, that was all planned. You know, copper is going to oxidize, and it's going to form that patina to protect that copper, and everyone knew that she would eventually turn green. Did they? Did everyone know that? Well, everyone who knew anything about copper. Okay. I mean. The builders knew it, and that was part of the whole thing, mm-hmm. was that copper, once it gets its patina, will last forever. Right. But, yeah, there probably were some schmoes in New York that were like, why is it turning green? Uh, and it happened, there's no direct date, but um, there are photos from as early as 1906, which is only about 20 years later, where that patina is, where she's, she's pretty green at that point. Mm-hmm. And I think at this point, in places on that statue, that patina is as thick as that copper. It's two two pennies deep. Yeah. So now it's four pennies deep in some places. So do you remember when we were younger in the mid-80s, there was like this, the, the restoration project of the, yeah. the Statue of Liberty? Sure. I was under the impression that they were going to clean the green off of it. Were oh. you not? I don't remember. I don't remember. Because I don't think I was under that impression. There's a reference in, in Seinfeld um, oh, really? About how, remember, George goes to work for Kruger Industrial Smoothing? Uh-huh. And they referenced that, that that Kruger was the company that botched the Statue of Liberty restoration job. So, like, I have the impression that other people think that it was supposed to be cleaned of its green color 
as well during that. But regardless, during I think so too. I think seeing the Statue of Liberty is anything but that aged copper green weird. That'd be so strange. But during that restoration, whether they were trying to clean the green off or not, um, they found a few things about it. They found the torch was irreparably weathered, and so the torch that she's holding now is new. It's the second version that was created using the exact same methods as the original one. Very Um, cool. But they replaced the torch. And then they also uh, found that a lot of Eiffel's um, wrought iron structure, a lot of it, was rusting and falling apart. So they yeah. replaced all of those with stainless steel. So she got like a really good uh, refresh and update in 1986 thanks to a, um, a committee led by Lee Iacocca, who was appointed by President Reagan. Very right, few, Mr. Pinto. Very few um, uh, sentences that are more 80s than that. <laughs> and then also we know that the restoration... Um, Worked at least until the year 3978, thanks to the Planet of the Apes movies. Or 3955, depending on who you ask. You just going to lob that spoiler in there? Dude. (laughs) It's a movie from 1968. (laughs) I know, I know. Can you really spoil that? Sure. One of the great endings. Uh, Now, about three to four million people a year visit Lady Liberty. Mm -hmm. And you can get in an elevator there on that ground level. Uh, to the top of the pedestal. And you can go all the way up to the crown even if you make a reservation, apparently. Right. But the elevator doesn't go that high. There are about 162 steps that'll get you there. And uh, and you can look out of that crown. I imagine that's quite a sight. And time was that they would just sell tickets without reservations, and you just buy your tickets and stand there in line to wait for the people who right. went up to come back down because there was not a lot of room on that that staircase. And now at least they're like you know, really innovating since 1986 by offering advanced reservations. Yeah, Apparently it was miserable. Right. (laughs) So one other fact about the Statue of Liberty, Chuck, that stuck out to me was she started out as the world's tallest statue when she was built and dedicated. But today she's just number 47 among the world's tallest statues, which means we've built a lot of really tall statues in the last hundred years. It's something that humanity's been really interested in, apparently. That's right. And if anyone ever says, yeah, I've been there. I stood, uh, climbed up in that uh, right next to the torch. <laughs> you call that person a liar <laughs> because no one's been allowed in that torch since 1916. Yeah. They may be thinking crown. Yeah. You won't be allowed in the torch again until the year 3978. <laughs> That's then right. You, then you can do whatever you want. Cause yeah, because the there. torch is just laying there on the beach. Basically. You finally did it. <laughs> You darn maniacs. Uh, Okay, well, uh, Chuck has nothing else. I have nothing else. And since I just said you darn maniacs, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this short and sweet. Oh, I like those. From a a younger. Like Humpty Dumpty. That's right. Hey, guys, I am 14 years old from northern Utah, and I've been listening to you guys for a while and really enjoy your podcast. It's really fun to listen to what spunky things you have to say. I love the use of spunky there. Sure. Uh, I listen all the time during car rides or doing crafts and art. If you would mind, I would love it if you read my letter for my siblings and say, sheesh, during listener mail. Wow. You guys are the bomb. We usually don't honor requests like I this. I know. But. I'm below, like my socks are just down <laughs> around my toes right now. But uh, Alyssa Stewart just sounded uh, like a, a nice kid and sometimes it's it's good to kind of one-up those siblings. Yeah. So to the siblings of Alyssa, who Alyssa didn't include, 
I'm just going to say one thing to you. Sheesh. Wow. Chuck, I think you just like fundamentally altered Thanksgiving at that yeah. house. Yeah. Birth order out the door. <laughs> cool order reset. <laughs> well, if you want the cool order in your family reset, take your best shot. I'll be surprised if we do it again, but then Chuck's always full of surprises, so you never can tell. Can't get a bead on that one, you know what I mean? Yes. In the meantime, you can send those requests to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.